This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hi, my name is Professor Susan Castles. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Geography, and I'm really pleased to be here today to talk to you about some of my research about moving HIV interventions into the right places. So I'm going to be talking about two specific studies. Um, but overall, uh, I'm going to be trying to convince you of these two um, main things. So f- to start at the end, basically, um, one main point I want to um, convince everybody of is that geography matters for health. So a lot of my work is based around where people live, where they work, where they play, where they socialize, and how those places and the behaviors in which they engage in those places really affects their health. So it's not only the behaviors, but it's the places as well. So that's geography. And second, I want to uh, convince you for my specific study population of sexual minority men that health behavior interventions, specifically HIV-related behavior, HIV-related interventions should really be tailored to the places in which um, populations engage in those risks. So it's all about geography of health. So that's what I, uh, that's, uh, you, can, you can stop watching now or you can uh, continue to watch and I'll convince you of these two points. Okay, so now back to the beginning. The main questions of my talk are threefold. First, I, um, I want to uh, research where do sexual minority men Um, I often use the term gay, gay, bisexual, or other men who have sex with men, MSM for short. In Los Angeles, where do they live, socialize, and how do these places um, influence the sexual behaviors of these men, drug use behaviors, and access to health care? That's the first study. The second is about um, HIV self-testing for the same um, population, sexual minority men. Um, What is the best way to promote these interventions? Um, in order to reduce HIV incidence. And throughout the talk, I'll talk a little bit more about geography of health, migration, and a little primer on HIV. So um, we should get to that in a minute. And then third is to tie it all together. How should this information inform HIV-related interventions? How can we use this information to target interventions or prioritize interventions into the right places so that they're most um, efficacious? Okay, so I always thought it would be good to talk about geography. What is that again? So this is a map um, that often fourth graders do. My fourth grader made a map of California using four different types of beans and, um, and uh, made a map of the four different regions. So a lot of people think geography is simply maps or uh, memorizing capitals. Um, it's really so much more than that. So if you're a freshman or interested in uh, majoring in, in geography, um, this is for you. So geography in Greek means earth writing, so it really is the science of place and space. But geographers can do a lot of different things. Um, They ask where things are located on the earth, how are places different from one another. Um, That can be a physical geographer, someone who studies more of the physical geographic properties. But then there are also um, social geographers or human geographers, and that's what I do. I ask questions like, how do people interact with the environment, and how do the spatial patterns that we see and the interactions between people and people in the environment change over time? So um, there's a there's a really rich discipline um, in geography. 
Specifically, my research is about geographic mobility and health. So how people move over space and time.、Um, movement can, of course, can be lots of things. It could be international migration. You know, we're hearing a lot about、um, refugees right now. So that's one type of、uh, migration. Another is、um, more of a mobility, so a daily activity of movement.、Um, all of these things are geographic mobility, and what I'm interested in is how the movement of people、um, affects health. So this really neat little schematic shows the place of origin of somebody, the 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 um, migration. Um, Uh, pattern itself, and how they, somebody might need to overcome obstacles in order to move. You could think of、um, transportation、uh, options, or you could think of、uh, structural barriers like an、uh, international border, and then the destination. So. How can migration affect health, or health affect migration? You can think about health in the origin populations, health during the actual journey itself, health in the destination populations. We can also think, as I do, of infectious diseases, and of course, this is all on our minds with COVID nineteen. How can the migration of people or the movement of people connect otherwise separate subpopulations and uh, and uh, enable the spread of infectious diseases? So I'm interested in that as well. Okay, so now for a bit of a primer on HIV and ending the HIV epidemic, and then I'll get to my research questions. So a lot of people don't think about HIV as much anymore as they did, say, in the '90s.、Um, but it's still a global、uh, pandemic, just like COVID.、Um, but it's it's different in a lot of ways as well. So currently in the United States, since the beginning of the HIV epidemic, about 700,000 individuals have died from HIV. About a million are currently living with HIV, and every year about 40,000, a little less, are newly acquiring HIV. So.、Um, That's the bad news. I guess it's still a very、um, persistent and、um, deadly problem. But the good news is, is that incidence is declining. The number of new infections, and the U.S. came up with this goal called ending the HIV epidemic, a plan for the United States of America, and the goal is to reduce new infections by seventy-five percent.、Um, By 2025, and at least 90% by 2030. And if we can reduce the the transmission of HIV significantly, then potentially the end of the epidemic is in sight. So, okay, that's the good news. We're going to work hard to try to reduce infections, and we have a lot of the、um, the tools in order to do this. Okay.、Um, Uh, and why I bring this up is that one of the key strategies of ending the HIV epidemic goal is to target geographically, target、um, new resources, expertise, money, technology into these right places, and they refer to these places where HIV incidence is the highest as hotspots. So I'm going to re- be referring to this concept of a hotspot a lot, and how I think we need to reconceptualize what a hotspot might mean in order to prioritize the placement of these interventions. Okay. A couple more things I want to highlight is that、um, so the good news is HIV incidence overall is declining, but there are significant and persistent racial disparities in who is actually、um, acquiring HIV and the rates of that acquisition. So for、um, racial minorities, Black Americans and Hispanic Americans, they are disproportionately affected by the HIV epidemic. So here are some numbers to ponder over. Um, and so, incidence decline is not happening in some of these um, uh, racial popu- uh, racial minorities.、Um, and secondly.、Um, 
uh, gay, bisexual, and other men who have sex with men are disproportionately affected by this uh, epidemic. Um, of course, we don't have great data on sexual and gender minorities in the U.S. because the U.S. Census still doesn't directly ask these questions. But we believe there's about uh, sexual minority men t- uh, make up about 2% of the population. However, they account for about 70% of all new HIV infections every year. So my research specifically looks at Hispanic and uh, black, um, gay, bisexual, and other men who have sex with men. Okay, so now let's uh, get into the first question. So this talk, I'm going to give you a, a, a taste of two very different research questions, different research methodologies that I use in order to ask uh, questions about place, mobility, and the geography of health and the geography of sex. So the first one is uh, where, if I if I feel that the movement of individuals is important for health, I'm asking where does sexual minority men in LA live and socialize, and how do these places influence um, sexual behavior, access to um, health care, substance abuse. Um, and so in order to answer these questions, my colleagues and I conducted a qualitative study uh, where we had semi-structured in-depth interviews of 20 men, um, all black and uh, Latinx sexual minority men living in LA. In order to analyze the data, we did a quali- classic qualitative uh, analysis, inductive coding, and then we uh, came up with these themes from the interviews of the men. Okay, so there are six key themes that I wanted to mention um, that we we, um, uncovered in our analysis. So the first is that um, we found a lot of the men in our sample did not express a lot of attachment to the areas in which they lived. They said, that's only where I sleep. I live my whole gay life elsewhere. So there's this idea that um, there's a lack of potential, potentially social cohesion in somebody's residential neighborhood, and yet they engage in activities elsewhere. And the problem here is that um, research, other research has found that social cohesion, or I should say lack of social cohesion, is a risk factor for um, HIV. So if somebody doesn't have a supportive network or have people they can turn to, that can actually lead to higher risk of HIV infection. So that's one thing. Another is that a lot of men expressed a separation of places. So the place in which they engage in sexual behavior or drug use behavior is not where they sleep or their residential locations. Um, so this is really important to think about, um, that uh, this lack of, uh, of uh, social cohesion and lack of attachment to places. Second, uh, we found just overall a very high level of mobility among the men in our sample. Um, and there are a lot of reasons for these mobilities. One is, uh, you know, housing and security. In California, we know that's a big problem. Uh, substance use often led to high mobility, but also just issues around gender and sexuality. A lot of people moved into L.A., um, in order to find uh, a new home, um, but yet rates of uh, mobility are actually much higher than we see in the general um, general population in the U.S. So homelessness and housing insecurity is a big problem. Um, third, race and racism. So we found that a lot of uh, mobility was driven by racism, and then a lot of racism kind of uh, drove mobility as well. And that, and as anyone who's familiar with L.A., you, you know that there's a racialized pattern of residences in L.A. as well. And so we found that a lot in the mobility patterns. So um, the kind of syndemics of racism and mobility uh, or lack of I should say housing and security, both kind of work together to potentially increase risk of HIV. 
this is something we could talk about for a lot longer, but um, just wanted to mention it in passing for now. Um, four out of six. Um, two things I wanted to say with this theme of HIV prevention, testing, and seroconversion of the process of becoming HIV positive. Um, so LA has a lot of barriers to migration and mo or mobility, right? To move through LA often requires um, either private cars or it takes a lot of time to use buses and public transportation. So mobility is just challenging. Um, so there were some themes that came up about accessing care. Um, if someone was late to an appointment, missed an appointment, they'd have to work hard to get another appointment at a long, a long time later. So that can be a risk of HIV as well. Um, but the good side is, is a lot of the men in our sample also mentioned that um, they used mobile uh, HIV pr uh, services like HIV mobile testing services. So this could be something or a process in which um, we can bring HIV interventions into the right places using these mobile services. Okay, uh, five, or f yeah. So um, one of the main themes that um, came across in our survey was the um, geography of sex and how that is changing with geo networks hookup apps like Grindr. Um, so the idea that it used to be you'd have to kind of cruise the strip or go to a gay bar if you were looking to engage in sex with somebody. Now, of course, it's a lot easier with uh, one of these apps. So, um, but these apps seem to be changing the geography of sex. And one, rep one uh, respondent mentioned an overground place, which is like a bar, and an underground place would be like a private home where people could engage in sex. And it seems that... Um, potentially the risk behaviors of sex in these underground places are higher, so in, uh, with, uh, with more substance use as well. So um, the, they also mentioned that these apps kind of killed the gay scene, so um, there's no need to go out. It's easier and more efficient to just find somebody on the phone. So this is a really interesting theme that is worth exploring further, especially in how that is associated with uh, increased risk or ongoing risk of HIV for sexual and minority men. Okay, the last one um, is substance use. So I should mention that the survey that we used um, to, well, we piggybacked upon a survey called the M study based out of UCLA. And this M study um, recruited men that often use substances. So about half of the sample of the bigger study are men who use substances. So this was already a, a theme in the study. So it's not surprising that the substance use uh, theme came out in our analysis, but it's interesting to think about how substance use and geographic mobility uh, work together to potentially um, increase risk. So um, a lot of substance use themes came up in reasons why people were mobile or reasons why people would engage in sex with others. Um, so um, and also, it might be intersecting with the location of sex, whether it's underground or not. Okay, so to tie it all back together, um, three main takeaway messages. One, 
residential instability, housing insecurity, created these churning patterns of movement around LA County for most of the participants in our study. So these men are mobile, and there's not a lot of security with housing. Um, A lot of men suggested that there is a separation of sexual spaces and social spaces and residential spaces. And these geosocial hookup apps really were influential in the movement and who people are engaging with and potentially the behaviors of the, during those engagements. So I would argue that um, some research then needs to target the places in which men, these men are engaging in risk or where we could find them, not just the hot spots that, that were defined earlier with ending the HIV epidemic, which were where people with HIV infections lived. I believe that the hot spot should be the hot spots of risk, the sexual risk or the substance use risk. And then these interventions should be targeted to those places. Okay, so that's the first study. So let's move on to the second one. So the second study is very different in the sense that instead of a qualitative study, this is a, um, uh, a study where we used mathematical modeling of infectious diseases. So the question, let's back up. The question was, um, now we can go to CVS and buy an HIV self-test. Kind of like you can buy a a self-COVID test at CVS. We can do this with HIV as well. So this is a good thing, right? People can test themselves if if they feel they're at risk or if they're acquiring a new partner and want to test before they engage in sex. But so our question was, what is the best way to promote HIV self-tests among sexual minority men in order to reduce HIV incidence? Okay, so we used a lot of data from a number of um, surveys, uh, involvement, AMOS, the MAN Project, the PUMA survey, and we used those data to parameterize a stochastic network-based HIV transmission model. So that's just a fancy way of saying a a simulation model. We're using a computer, we're putting in data, and then we run simulations to test out different hypothetical scenarios. So this is a really good way when you can't do, for ethical reasons, money reasons, time reasons, where you can't do real-time experiments, but you want to understand what if scenarios, what if everyone used self-tests, what if only a certain population used self-tests. So the main part of the study I want to mention, though, is we parameterized four different types of HIV testers. So we used some data to parameterize why men test and then um, to systematically evaluate whether HIV self-testers amongst those different types of testers would be more beneficial or not. Okay, so let's back up a little bit. HIV. HIV I should have mentioned this before, Um, there is no cure for HIV, there is no vaccine for HIV, but if somebody acquires HIV, understands that they're positive, so gets a positive diagnosis, starts taking their antiretroviral drugs, then that person can live a long and healthy life, just almost as long and healthy as someone without HIV. So it's not a death sentence anymore, so that's a really good thing. But secondly, if someone starts their uh, antiretroviral medication and adheres to it, they are almost um, 100% protected from passing on that infection to somebody else. There's a 96% reduction in the transmission risk from an HIV-positive person adherent to their um, medication to pass it on to a partner. Okay, so HIV testing and uh, diagnosing someone's status is, is really the first step. Okay, because it reduces ongoing transmission and it allows somebody to live a long and healthy life. Okay, Um, 
globally, about 50% of people globally living with HIV are unaware, and being unaware of your status actually leads disproportionately to more infections. So that's another reason why it's important to test people and uh, diagnose that infection early on before they're um, uh, potentially spreading to others. So how do we then increase knowledge of HIV status? Well, you can increase testing frequency, or you can get better tests, tests that can uh, detect infections really quickly. Okay, so uh, HIV self-test. So typically someone would go to their doctor or to a clinic and get tested there. But now you have a test where uh, a person can go to a store and buy it. So it's rapid. Usually for this one, you, you, you swab some saliva. So people could test more frequently. Um, so because the majority of new infections occur due to people not knowing their status, this uh, public health campaign suggests that um, you should be part of the solution. You can go visit your local HIV clinic, get tested, or you can go test yourself, right? It's kind of a cheeky message, but you can go test yourself at home. So that's good, right? You can increase the number of tests. The problem is um, these test results can be misinterpreted, and the biggest problem is what we call the window period. So this um, OraQuick test um, advertises a three-month window period, meaning they don't guarantee that this test can detect an infection until three months after that person gets infected. So that window period can, uh, can really be a long time. The one, a window period for a clinic test is about a week or two. Okay, so here's the baseline of the, 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 the model. We have four types of testers. People, according to the surveys, that, the data we used, either don't test, they don't go to the clinic and test, but the research suggests that they would test um, at home with a, with a self-test. We have opportunistic testers, people who test only if given the opportunity, say, at a gay pride event or um, a festival. People who test based on risk, so after um, a, engaging in a potential risky encounter or starting a new relationship, then those people would test for HIV. And then there's also the vast, well, not vast majority, 50 to 60% of the surveys respondents said they test regularly. And that's what um, the protocol is. Uh, Sexual minority men are encouraged to test twice a year, regularly. Okay, so we have our um, two different types of scenarios in our hypothetical model where we simply replace all of the clinic tests with HIV self-tests and see what happens to HIV transmission and incidence. And then we have a bunch of scenarios where we supplement. So they still do their clinic tests. Well, not for these people, right? But they still do their clinic tests, and then we add on HIV self-tests. And the outcome is HIV incidence, which I won't get into. We run the model for 10 years. We run our different scenarios and uh, look at HIV incidence. So here are the four main results. Okay, HIV self-tests can reduce the number of new HIV infections, so that's incidence, but only if these tests do not replace the use of clinic-based testing. In almost every scenario, if we simply replaced HIV self-tests with, with um, replace clinic tests with self-tests, HIV incidence would go up. So the only way that HIV incidence in the population would decline is if these HIV self-tests supplement clinic tests. Um, even though HIV non-testers were a small, say, 2 to 5% of the samples in which we studied, targeting HIV self-testing to non-testers was an effective means of reducing incidence. Um, even if these 
HIV self-tests have long window periods. Okay, so the largest reduction in HIV incidence came from when we supplemented in our hypothetical scenarios, we supplemented the regular base testers. So they regularly tested at their clinic and then they added an additional test once a year, twice a year. Um, that is where we got the greatest gains or the best results uh, in meeting lower HIV incidence. Lastly, and this is really an interesting, um, slightly more nuanced finding. So among risk-based testers, um, HIV incidence would actually still go up for risk-based testers who supplemented their clinic tests with self-tests. And this is because of that window period. If somebody had a risk event, an unprotected sex act, tested with a self-test a week later, that self-test would not detect the infection because the window period was too, you know, it didn't have enough time to get the antibodies to detect the infection in the person. So that person would have a false negative result, thinking they're negative when in fact they're infected with HIV and actually have a lot of virus in their body and able to transmit it. Okay, so among risk-based testers, um, HIV self-testing was only an effective means of reducing incidence if we um, shortened the window period of the HIV self-test. So that's a, an important finding. HIV self-test can be an important means of reducing incidence, but we got to produce tests that have the shorter window period, a shorter amount of time in which that can detect an infection after the person was infected. Okay. So to take, uh, the take-home messages of this is HIV self-tests should be promoted differently depending on the healthcare settings, um, the baseline testing re rates, the available clinic tests that they have in the, the city that they live. But it also depends on the behaviors of the individuals, the strategies for testing within partnerships and couples, and seroadaptive strategies. That's actually a fancy way of saying the way in which people engage in sex based on the HIV status of both people. Um, okay, so taking those two studies and tying it all together, um, I want to convince you that we need to move HIV interventions into the right places based on the geography of sex, the mobility patterns, the behaviors of the population. Okay, so from the first study, since sexual, social, and residential neighborhoods might be very different for sexual minority populations, interventions should be geographically targeted to the places in which um, transmission and acquisition risk take place. I propose that interventions targeted to these places might be... Um, adopted more readily than, say, at a residential place where somebody might not be out or um, might not spend a lot of time. So we should move the interventions to where the risk occurs. Also because there's a movement in public health now for uh, like peer delivery interventions, you know, like a, a drug um, antiretroviral therapy um, given by peers or using pharmacies to get pre-exposure prophylaxis instead of the barriers of getting to a healthcare facility and talking to a doctor. Interventions are kind of becoming more um, common in communities through alternate delivery means. 
Okay. Second, um, the effectiveness of an intervention, whichever intervention you're doing, maybe HIV self-test is one of these interventions. The effectiveness of that intervention really depends on the social and behavioral settings of the place. So interventions must be targeted or tailored to maximize the effectiveness while limiting risks. So the HIV self-test study suggested that if you simply say, here, take this self-test and replace it and don't bother going to a clinic, that could actually be a risky thing. Um, so the interventions need to be tailored to the behaviors of the populations. And let me just mention that um, my current work right now is using these two findings and then saying, well, if we have enough money for a single intervention and we know we need to target it to a certain place, which place should we go, right? We have, say, 10 risk hotspots. I want to know how are those risk hotspots connected through the movement of people or through the geography of a sexual network. Say somebody lives in point A, but their sexual partner lives in point B. Um, how could an intervention targeted at point A actually have benefits to other places as well? So places are connected too. Okay, so to start where we began, um, the geography of, uh, the, well, geography matters for health. Um, where people engage in their lives, the, their, their socialization, where they live, all of these things affect health, not just for my study, but um, for everything, right? Whether somebody has access to a park where they can play um, or sidewalks in which they could walk. Okay, so geography matters. Second, um, for sexual minority men, HIV-related interventions really need to be tailored to places in which they engage in risk. Okay, so that's it. Um, thank you for watching. I'd just like to acknowledge my collaborators. The study we are conducting is funded through the National Institutes of Health, and we work with the M study at UCLA. Um, I'm, of course, in the geography department, and our research takes place at the LA LGBT Center and the Vine Street Clinic. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.